0: Russia's war in Ukraine is in its seventh month with no clear end in sight. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced the strategic town of Lyman in eastern Ukraine was retaken on Sunday. He also had a message for Russian citizens after President Vladimir Putin announced the illegal annexation of four regions in eastern Ukraine.
1: Will not get new
0: he says Russians Russia must stop the one Russian who wants war more than life. According to the Washington Post, hundreds of thousands of Russians have left the country since September 21st. That's when President Putin announced his military mobilization effort, a forced conscription of between 300,000 and a million Russian men. What does the future look like for Russians who have left and what remains for Russians who have stayed? We'll discuss all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to connect with us, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us in Washington, D.C. is Julia Yaffe. She's the founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck News. She's also written for The Atlantic and GQ, focusing on foreign policy. Julia, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us from Moscow is NPR correspondent Charles Maines. Charles, thanks for joining us. Happy to do it. So, Charles, how would you characterize the current stage of Russia's war with Ukraine?
2: Well, it's problematic. I mean, really, we've since the beginning of this conflict in February, the Kremlin's been really careful to frame its actions in Ukraine to the Russian public as limited in nature. Uh, you know, so we have it's a Russia special military operation. That's the official term here. It's not a war. Uh, some might mock that as Orwellian, but it was, you know, true in one sense: in that Putin was fighting with professional soldiers, uh, mercenaries, um, volunteers who were paid big uh, salaries to do so, even prisoners, um, and the rest of the country could largely go about their lives, um, even with sanctions and all that came with it. Um, Now this has all really changed ever since he announced this partial mobilization, again more kind of semantics uh, to soften the reality. uh, We see the defense ministry mobilizing 300,000 troops to start with. Uh, Those numbers a lot of people think will be much higher. Uh, And this has really kind of shocked society in a way that uh, I haven't seen since February um, in the sense that it's really reaching into every home and it's meeting a lot of resistance. So you have people protesting some of the big cities but also smaller places. Uh, we see have a lot of violence and attacks on the recruiting centers and just a general concern throughout society.
0: How is, how is this being communicated within Russia? How is the Kremlin talking about Russia's progress or lack thereof in Ukraine?
2: Yeah, you know, you know, Putin justifies uh, this change, uh, this shift, because everything was go- going, quote, according to plan uh, until it wasn't. And and he justifies the shift by saying that the nature of the conflict has changed. If it was initially a war against Ukraine or what they claimed were Ukrainian fascists, uh, now it's a war against what he calls the collective West. In other words, this is the combined power, not of Ukraine so much, but of uh, the U.S. and its NATO allies.
0: Well, Putin delivered a nationwide address to Russia Friday evening. This was during a ceremony announcing the annexation of four Ukrainian provinces. He says, quote, they've made a choice to be with their people, be with the homeland, to live its fate, to win with it. The truth is with us. Russia is with us, end quote. Julia, what was the strategy behind this messaging from President Putin, especially considering the broad condemnation of this move?
1: Well, I think it was uh, twofold. First of all, I think it was designed more for an internal audience, especially for the so-called party of war, which are the hawks, the, the people who, the hardliners. You know, I think we in the West think that Putin is this crazy nationalist hardliner, and he is. But in the Kremlin, especially with the unleashing of the war, there are people who are even more hard-line nationalists than he is, and he is the kind of moderating force. Um, so and they are pushing Putin to go harder, to push faster, that in their minds, Russia is fighting this war with one hand tied behind their backs, and if, and if Putin were to go harder, that they could have conquered Ukraine much faster. So this is this was in some ways a, throwing a bone to them to show that, uh, no, in fact, the war has not been a failure, that in the seven months that Russia has been fighting this war, that to us in the West may look like a failure in which they have failed to topple the government in Kiev, have failed to take pretty much everything they wanted to take. Here he has shown that he has taken the swath of territory, has liberated uh, quote unquote liberated these republics in the east and added this chunk of territory to the you know newfangled Russian empire and uh, expanded the empire so he's throwing a bone to them and uh I think he's also the the second thing the second thing he's doing is he's kind of upping the ante with the west he's showing that this is now Russian territory. this shows that There are now foreign troops on Russian territory and that he can now resort to more drastic measures to defend this Russian territory. Of course, the catch is even Russia, even the Kremlin, cannot say specifically where that Russian territory ends. The Kremlin has not been able to specify what the borders of these new republics that it has annexed are.
0: Kokomo Kid tweeted, where are the Russian men going? Charles, what can you tell us about where people trying to avoid uh, this, this draft, where they're actually heading to? Well,
2: the people that are trying to avoid the draft are heading for all the exits, uh, which are the borders around Russia. Russia is obviously a very large country. Uh, so it was today we heard from the authorities in Kazakhstan saying it's over 200,000 Russians have left uh, through the Kazakhstan border. Uh, we also have Mongolia, Finland, even up in the Arctic Circle in Norway. there's uh, also a big sort of uh, choke point uh, with a small border with Georgia, uh, the Republic of Georgia. So you have Russians kind of heading for wherever they can, uh, trying to get out. Uh, the, the estimates today are coming out of roughly 700,000 since this mobilization effort was launched. Um, although I don't, we don't know quite exact figures, but clearly they're large. Um, you know, and meanwhile we also heard from the defense minister today, uh, Sergei Shoigu, who said that they have now uh, they basically processed two hundred thousand of the three hundred initial uh, three hundred thousand that they they say they want for the campaign. Some are being deployed right to Luhansk almost immediately, and certainly we've heard, you know, multiple stories uh, of Russians being uh, drafted or given draft notices and then basically sent right to the front lines um, without training. Sometimes ill-equipped, and it's not just you know the independent media that's saying this. So Vladimir Putin finally had to weigh in the last week. He he admitted that there were problems uh, with the mobilization effort, and, and called on governors who've really been charged with kind of getting the quota in, in place, with getting these numbers in place, uh, to fix it.
0: Rodney Bland emailed us this question. It seems like Russia has expended all its energy on the Western Front. I would like to know, is the larger eastern region even aware of the war? Julia, what can you tell us?
1: The eastern region of Russia, or?
0: It's, that's, uh, that, that's how I'm reading his question. That's what it sounds like.
1: Uh, I I think it is. Uh, A lot of draftees are coming from there, and um, parts of those parts of Russia are very heavily affected by the war. Parts like Yakutia, Buryatia, these kind of uh, heavily ethnic uh, ethnic minority republics have been heavily affected by the war. First, as uh, places where um, military contractors are coming from, and these are People who sign up to go fight in the army as kind of vol- paid volunteers, um, and then they were they were seemingly very heavily affected by the draft quotas. And both there and in the North Caucasus, we saw a lot of protests in the in the first week after the announcement of the partial mobilization. And it called into question of how um, the Kremlin was distributing. The, this draft, right? And to what extent this was, in some ways, a campaign of ethnic cleansing, mm-hmm. right? And to what extent R- Russia was sparing the ethnic Slavic, the ethnic Russian population in favor of sending in, because everybody kind of understands that, as Charles said, these recruits are being sent in untrained, unequipped, and the the kind of the sense is that they're, that they're therefore being sent in as cannon fodder. They're being sent in to die. And that if they're being sent in from these regions in the east, for example, uh, from these ethnic enclaves in Siberia, for example, or in the North Caucasus, are they just sending in the ethnic minorities who are treated as second-class citizens who are subject to pretty grotesque and ugly racism in Russia? Are they being sent in first as cannon fodder to fight... Ironically, this war of of pan-Slavic, for this pan-Slavic nationalist vision that Putin has created, uh, this kind of intra-Slavic war between Russia and Ukraine, it's this very ugly aspect of of this national, of this um, war and of this uh, draft that is kind of under-discussed.
0: Charles, briefly, we saw early in this a crackdown on media and and journalism in Russia. Given there are so few Russian journalists still working in the country, what kind of information is, is being shared within its borders?
2: Well, actually quite a bit Um, through social media, in particular telegrams become sort of the fire hose for information here. Uh, And so while a lot of the media outlets themselves have either moved abroad or shut their doors, uh, there's certainly plenty to
0: read. And joining us now from Riga, Latvia is Alexei Kovalov. Alexei is the investigative editor for the independent news outlet Medusa. It was established in 2014 and has continued reporting independently on Russia for the past eight years. This March, Medusa moved their staff out of the country after strict laws punishing journalists were established by the Kremlin. Alexei, thank you for joining us. Uh, Hi there. Thank you for having me. Alexei Medusa started in 2014 following Russia's annexation of Crimea from Ukraine. What indications did you and your colleagues have eight years ago that President Putin may have greater territorial ambitions inside Ukraine?
3: Uh, Well, I gotta admit, I was one of the many people who until the very last moment did not believe that uh, he will go further. Because uh, Crimea was a perfect coup for him; it was bloodless mostly, and it inspired a great wave of uh, patriotic fervor in Russia, in Russians. And it seemed like uh, for a while, it seemed like he would be content with that. But uh, but then he didn't. Right until the last moment, I was uh, actually on the um, on the my on the last day before the war, I was putting together uh, a poll of experts. Uh, who all said no? He's not going to attack Ukraine. And the next morning at six a.m., I was woken up uh, by my editor who, who said just two words: "It started." Hmm. I didn't. I didn't really need him to explain uh, uh, what did. Um, so, um, although looking back, I can see that all the writing was on the wall. All these eight years, it was perfectly clear what he was. Now, uh, in hindsight, it's it's uh, his plans were out there in the, in the open, uh, and he ensured uh, through, uh, uh, through both increasing uh, uh, through uh, uh, very through very ambitious military exercises uh, showing off his uh, uh, his new arms and uh, the uh, triumphant war in Syria uh, which also was very popular uh, as is kind of a, a televised war uh, where our, the Russian artillery and uh, Uh, and airplanes, are striking terrorist targets without any casualties uh, at all. Um, And then also he, um, uh, all these years, and I was among the people who were receiving under these policies, he tightened uh, all the restrictions on on civil society and the media especially, uh, because by the time I had to emigrate in early March, uh, all of the, uh, Most of the independent media in Russia were already snuffed out by uh, very restrictive laws. Mm-hmm. So he came prepared to this, but it turns out not so much.
0: Charles, the military mobilization, as you mentioned, has led to widespread protests across the country. One man opened fire on a soldier at a recruitment office in the Russian region of Siberia. But can protest be sustained under Russian authoritarian rule?
2: Well, I think what's interesting here is that the protests are happening in places uh, other than maybe the usual suspects. So it's not just in Moscow and Petersburg, St. Petersburg, the second capital, uh, where we often see, you know, a resistance to uh, Putin and to the Kremlin. Uh, and to the conflict from the very beginning. But now we see it in places like Dagestan, as Julia was pointing out earlier, in places near in the Caucasus, in Siberia, and often places where, you know, you could argue it's Putin's base. I mean, he essentially, it's one thing to put pressure on the opposition. It's another to put pressure on your own base. And they're asking people who, over the course of this past six, seven months, had opportunities, I suppose, if they wanted to, to volunteer for this conflict, they did not. Uh, And now he's reaching into their homes and giving orders. So it's quite different.
0: Since President Putin's September 21st mobilization order, more than 180,000 Russians have fled to Kazakhstan, Georgia, Turkey. That's according to The Washington Post. But what else do we know about these Russians? Alexei, I'll come to you on this. Given that some of the plane tickets were going for thousands of dollars, so there had to be some means to get out of the country. But what else do we know about these people who are fleeing?
3: Uh, I would say, well, for my uh, own anecdotal experiences, um, uh, uh, some of the people who fled in the first wave, uh, like myself, um, felt that they, like there was a direct threat to their safety uh, because of their political activity or because they were independent reporters like myself. Uh, but uh, for um, other people, uh, a larger uh, proportion of them, mostly in urban centers, uh it wasn't uh, that bad at the moment, so uh, being in a state of uh, in a state of war uh, was uh, very demoralizing for many people. And I'm in touch with uh, uh, many people with my sources, and even in government agencies, and they were as dismayed as I was. Uh, but it was still not enough incentive to. Uh, it's you know, it's a pretty drastic change in your life to leave behind your home. Uh, and move to a foreign country, uh, but it's still the incentive of of just being ashamed uh, uh, of of Putin's war wasn't enough for them. But now the draft is uh, threatening them directly. And these are people, what's happening now is that uh, most of the major industries offices are in in Moscow, and right now those industries are scrambling to lobby the Ministry of Defense to give their uh, workforce a reprieve. because. The way it works is um, that, for example, an uh, an engineer uh, of forty years, uh, who uh, whose entire military experience was in ROTC training uh, twenty years back in a university, uh, was given a um, sort of a uh, a reserve ID where it says that he's a military engineer and uh, and will be drafted in wartime. But it's been twenty years Mm -hmm. for him, and he's now a senior. Uh, developer in, an, in a major IT firm. And he's being drafted in the army uh, to serve as a grunt with the, uh, the machine gun. Mm.
0: Charles, I, I know we need to let you go, but you've spent years reporting in Russia as a freelancer and, and now you're NPR's Moscow correspondent. How are you staying connected with your Russian sources and friends as the Kremlin continues its assault on the free press?
2: Well, It's become more difficult. Uh, a lot of them have left the country, frankly. Uh, but there are people here, not everyone can leave. And um, and certainly, you know, again, I like, like Alexei, I also have you know personal stories of friends who fled across the border have these just amazing stories of you know bicycling across the Caucasus Mountains to get into Georgia. Or, or you know, waiting in line for hours and hours uh, after this mobilization effort was announced. So, you know, everyone has these connections to Russian society. Uh, but I also know plenty of people who stayed. And uh, they're the ones that are trying to figure out how to kind of survive in this environment. And it's shifting a lot. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's really important to point out that, you know, as even as of right now, you know, we hear rumors that the borders will close. They will not close. Um, you know, so there's a lot of uncertainty in Russian society, and it applies to all strata of society. So as Alexei was pointing out, even these sort of upper, you know, elites are trying to figure out ways to get their kids out of harm's way. Uh, he mentioned some of these, you know, certain areas of business where you can get a reprieve from from service. You know, it seems as though I've never seen so much interest in um, suddenly becoming an IT specialist mm-hmm. or a telecom specialist or on and on. But I think you've seen this kind of rush for people to, find whatever way they can to avoid uh, service. There are some, of course, also who are who are going into this. And, uh, and I certainly hear those stories as well.
0: That's NPR's Moscow correspondent, Charles Main. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. We're discussing life at war from inside Putin's Russia. We'll hear more from you and our guests in just a moment. get back to our conversation about the war in Ukraine and how it's impacting life in Russia. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Natalia Arno is the president and founder of the Free Russia Foundation. The nonprofit organization has been working since 2014 to support a free, democratic and peaceful Russia. Over the past 6 months, they've helped thousands of persecuted Russians escape the country. Natalia, welcome to the program. Hello. Well, we spoke with you back in March. This was weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine. How have the demands of your organization evolved over the past seven months?
4: Well, yes. Uh, for, um, on February 24th, it was um, like everybody else. We were shocked, uh, outraged, and ashamed that uh, this uh, full-scale invasion happened. And uh, uh, we are a do-tank, a think-tank, but, um, of course, uh, as soon as um, this attack on Ukraine happened, we uh, had to become immediately a humanitarian organization. So we started to evacuate people from Ukraine, uh, so um, from uh, February until April, we were uh, doing so, um, running the buses, evacuation buses from Kiev, Zaporozhye, um, Kramatorsk and other uh, places in Ukraine uh, to the Polish border. Uh, we evacuated over 10,000 people from Ukraine, simultaneously trying to save as many Russians as we could. Um, and uh, But on uh, uh, September 21, when uh, for many Russians, uh, it was their February 24th moment, for us it was... Uh, the second time, <laughs> February 24th, because we had to uh, now vacate people from Russia. Um, again, we started to run the vacation process again, helping many uh, ethnic minority groups uh, that were doing so, uh, advocating people from many republics to, um, to the borders of uh, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and many other countries. Mm.
0: Now, Alexei, the regions in Russia with the highest rates of death per population size are also among the country's poorest regions. How is class- underpinning the dynamics of the invasion of Ukraine and and how it's viewed inside Russia?
3: Um, So look, uh, before uh, September 21st, uh, the war was mostly, uh, 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 being in the war uh, was mostly voluntary. Of course, there are nuances because there were reports early on that uh, 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 conscripts were pressured into signing these short-term contracts and shipped off to Ukraine because according to Russian law, conscripts uh, are not allowed to be in an active war zone. Um, so there were reports that commanders were pressuring young conscripts into signing these contracts. Uh, but there is also an economic incentive, uh, incentive because uh, for places like Tuva, uh, the uh, small Buddhist republic on the border with Mongolia or Dagestan, uh, these are the, among the poorest regions in Russia, where the median monthly pay is one-tenth of the uh, salary promised by the um, uh, defense ministry. So uh, uh, it's not that these people, it's not that the the protests going on right now in in these regions are about, you know, being unfair and unfairly targeted by conscription because, uh, technically speaking, this was not conscription until February 21st. But uh, uh, they feel like they are being intentionally
0: uh, pressured into this war. Uh, by uh, by economic means. Julia, how has President Putin been attempting to shield Russia's upper middle class from the realities of the war?
1: Well, for one thing, he delayed the mobilization until seven months into the war. All summer, we saw that life went on as normal, especially in the big, rich cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg from what i heard um i have not been back to russia since the war started but from what i was hearing from friends and family who were still there life went on as normal in the two capitals moscow and st petersburg the party didn't stop restaurants were full life went on as normal it was you know it what they were telling me sounded a lot like what life was like in america when america was fighting two wars in iraq and afghanistan right mm-hmm. If you went into the West Village or uh, Dupont Circle in 2007, you wouldn't know that America was bogged down in a bloody fight in uh, Iraq, right? And that's kind of what it was like in Moscow and Saint Petersburg. Now the war has finally come home, and Putin is realizing that maybe Russians don't support it as much as they said they did before. It seemed that the support—it seems like the support was much more passive because nothing was really required of them. What was required of them, as uh, of Russians, was to basically ignore the war and let Putin do whatever he thought necessary. It was for them to keep consuming and to keep propping up the Russian economy and to not meddle, uh, to keep going to restaurants and clubs and theatres and to keep travelling and spending. Uh, now, it, the picture has completely been upended and as both Alexei and Charles have said, you see, business white collar businesses trying to get um, uh, exemptions from the draft for their co-worker for their workers. You you've heard rumors, uh, you've ha- had stories of chefs at Michelin starred restaurants in Moscow getting pulled from the line, uh, getting draft notices. Doctors at fancy private clinics getting draft notices. Now uh, the government is saying that b- government bureaucrats are exempt from the draft. So now you're starting to see that slowly and surely the, uh, the, you know, upper classes are starting to get their exemptions. And it'll again be, you know, the poor, the poor people who will do the fighting. And again, of course, the, you know, the 700,000 people who have fled are often the people who have the means to flee, the people who have a car. The people who have the money for a plane ticket, which of course ballooned in price, the people who have money to set up shop when they get to a different country, to you know, to get a hotel room or Airbnb, and to start a new life somewhere, and again, of course, the people who can't go anywhere, who can't escape the draft, who will end up getting to the front, sent to the front lines, untrained and unequipped, are the poor people the ethnic minorities, uh, the people who don't have the resources and the connections Mm. to escape the draft.
0: Natalia, Russia is home to 190 different ethnic minority groups. And the Russian government has a long history of persecuting these groups throughout the Soviet era. What steps are international aid organizations like Amnesty International taking to try to protect persecuted populations in Russia?
4: Um, I would say that uh, the most important thing right now is to uh, be aware about the situation, and I think Amnesty and many other groups are trying to to do that, uh, because Russia is not only an eleven-time zone country; it's yes, as you said, a 190 ethnic minority country, and those groups were among the first and uh, disproportionately uh, drafted uh, to this um, uh, war, uh, and uh, they uh, feel impact of this uh, war uh, from the very beginning. Uh, if you are from Buryatia, for example, the risk that you would die in this war is like nine times more than anywhere uh, in in Russia. Or if you, if you are from the Republic of Tuvai, it's ten times more. If you are from Chechnya, it's three times more. So again, uh, people in this ethnic minority uh, republics, they feel the war from the very beginning. And uh, when the uh, mobilization started for them, it wasn't a partial mobilization at all. It was a completely full mobilization when... Uh, the drafting uh, officers were trying to get everybody they could, uh, waking up people at 4 a.m. in the morning, uh, rounded up uh, students, uh, taking them from their classes, uh, having absolutely anybody they could get uh, to uh, to draft uh, to conscript to this war. And um, these groups uh, feel it especially, um, and it's, uh, I would say, it's a deliberate uh, policy of. Um, the Soviet Union first and then Putin's Russia to uh, impoverish this region to get more control over these regions. They don't have any other opportunities rather than either go to earn their money in Moscow, or in Petersburg, where the problem, or, or uh, everywhere in Russia, the problem of racism and xenophobia is very big and uh, they are treated as second sort people. Uh, harassed, beaten, often killed uh, for their ethnicity. Uh, or they, now when this uh, war started, they are the first ones to send to the war because, they are, like again, um, cannon fodder, like expendables, more expendable mm. than us.
0: Well, one of the greatest fears remaining is whether President Putin will resort to nuclear weapons to achieve his end goal in Ukraine. Olga Oliker is the program director for Europe and Central Asia at the International Crisis Group in Brussels. And she spoke with Medusa's podcast, The Naked Pravda, about this concern. He's threatening nuclear use in order to deter or compel behavior from adversaries. So if you think about his nuclear threats from back in February, which were, you know, if you get in our way, there'll be consequences greater than you have ever imagined. Most people thought that it was a nuclear threat. They also thought it wasn't a credible nuclear threat. Western states went ahead and supplied weapons and other aid to Ukraine. What has held, though, is this unspoken threat that if there is an actual hot war between Western states and Russia... That comes with a risk of nuclear escalation, which is a terrifying thing. Alexei, based on the conversations you've had with military experts, how concerned are they about a targeted nuclear attack?
3: Well, I'm not really a military expert, uh, but uh, from what I know, you know, uh, you know threats work as long as you show that you were uh, able to follow up on them. But uh, I've lost count of the red lines that uh, Putin has drawn, and then uh, Ukraine uh, has quite confidently violated uh, for example, many times that the final red line would be Ukraine attacking Crimea and then Ukraine just um, you know, bombs an airfield in Crimea and nothing really happens uh, and uh, I think it's uh, obviously uh, we cannot know for sure if he's bluffing or uh, he's for real uh, but what these uh, empty hollow threats did is uh, fatally wrote his responsibility both domestically as well and uh, and you can see the power, uh, different power players um, sensing weakness, and you know circling like sharks uh, around him. But that's a, like a different angle to the story. Um, but um, we do not really, you know, the short answer is nobody knows yeah. if he's going to follow up on this particular uh, uh, threat that uh, of many other threats that he's uh, voiced in the past few months.
0: Julia, we just have about 30 seconds left here. How is the United States thinking about its future with Russia as President Putin descends deeper into war?
1: I just wanted to disagree with the premise of of the caller's question I don't think it depends on whether or not there's a hot war with the U.S. and Russia. I think it depends, you know, the question of whether Russia uses nuclear weapons. I think it depends on how badly Russia is doing on the battlefield and how badly Putin feels threatened, because this is an existential war for Putin personally, not for Russia. And so the worst he's doing on the battlefield, the more likely it is that he'll use a nuclear weapon. It doesn't depend on whether America attacks him or whether he feels attacked by the U.S.
0: Well, we'll have to leave it there. That's Julia Yaffe, the founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck News. Also with us, Alexei Kovalov, the investigative editor for Meduza, that's an independent news site covering Russia, and Natalia Arno, president and founder of the Free Russia Foundation. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.